You heard that right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Sports Zoo. My name is Zach Safran. My co-host, Jacob Neidig, and I here live on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM, available to stream on kzsustanford.edu as well. Joined today by my special guest, Akash. Akash, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey guys, I'm Akash. I'm currently a sophomore at Stanford right now. I'm studying computer science and I'm very into sports. I love basketball, love football, love watching all of them. And used to play tennis and basketball back in high school. So, yeah, it's a little about me. And Akash, on campus, you hold a position as the president of the Stanford Sports Analytics Club. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I actually am the president of the sport, Stanford Sports Analytics Club. So, we've been doing some work with a few of the Stanford sports teams. Uh, we're about to work with the Stanford uh, women's lacrosse team and some other like sports companies. And we bring in a lot of guest speakers and stuff. So it's been a good time. And we've uh, got a good group going there. Evidently, Akash, lots of sports expertise to provide here on the Sports Zoo. And, you know, plenty to talk about today. A big weekend in the sporting world. If anybody follows the NFL or any major sporting event for that matter. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Akash, I gotta ask, did you watch the game this weekend? Of course. Watched the full game start to finish. Absolutely. And obviously, the big game, Chiefs-Eagles. Want to know your thoughts going to the game? Who did you have? What were you expecting? And did the game live up to the hype? Uh, so I'm from D.C., so I'm actually a big Commanders fan, so I was very biased, and I wanted the Chiefs fully because Eagles are obviously one of our biggest rivals. So for me, uh, the game lived up to the hype. I was a little worried when Mahomes got his ankle taken out in the middle of the game. I thought he was going to be injured, but he came back because he's just built different. And when you're talking about the Super Bowl, of course, got to talk about that ending holding call. We get any thoughts on that one? Yeah, that's honestly the one thing I hate about the NFL. I feel like all the playoff games, uh, so many big games get decided by penalty way more than any other sports. Like in the NBA, I feel like it does sometimes, but in the NFL, you just look at like the playoffs. You saw the Bengals uh, like roughing the passer out of bounds call on the homes, and like so many of these big games that they worked all season just get decided by one like small call. So I didn't like it too much, but I mean at the same time, I wanted the Chiefs to win, so I was happy. Hate to see it. Jacob showing a little emotion. Maybe he thinks otherwise. As we navigate technical difficulties real quick, um, Akash, analytically, was there any sort of anomaly that you noticed that went on during Super Bowl Sunday? Maybe it was the high scoring early on, something along those lines. Uh, one thing that I was thinking about that I said to one of my friends when we were watching it was when the Chiefs scored to go up seven with in the later later in the fourth quarter. I thought that they should have went for two two there to try to go up nine and make a two possession game. I didn't actually run any analytics or any numbers behind it, so I don't know the actual numbers. But for me, I just thought that the Eagles probably would have ended up getting a two point conversion, so you might as well go for two and try to make a two possession game and almost end it there. But ended up working out for them, so works well. 100%. Another big thing was the octopus. Do you know what I'm talking about? The octopus. Uh, no, 
not exactly sure. Um, octopus is when the same player scores a touchdown and the ensuing two-point conversion, a big thing in sports gambling. Analytics in sports gambling seemingly tied very closely uh, in recent years. Is that an area the Stanford Sports Analytics Clubs covers at all? Uh, yeah, we actually had a guest speaker come in to talk about uh, sports betting for us. He was a friend of mine who is also a sophomore at uh, Stanford and runs a sports uh, betting model. And so he came in and talked to our club about how he kind of, the process he went through to how his model works to try to predict uh, and find inefficiencies in the uh, sports market. And that was actually ended up being one of our uh, bigger meetings. So for us, yeah, I think there's a lot of interest in sports betting and it's definitely becoming more popular uh, among like college people and people our age. So, yeah. Certainly. And tied in with sports betting are the odds and that's just kind of a product of you know people looking at favorites I know the Chiefs opening as the favorites for the Super Bowl next year what are your thoughts on that I mean they still have my home so I can't really argue with that he's the best in the game so I can see where they're coming from I think the 49ers also once they get a quarterback back they should be a very deadly team because with McCaffrey, Debo and Trey Lance it should be I think that they're one of the favorites too, but yeah, I can't really argue with Mahomes. 100%. And uh, from D.C., got to ask the big question, are you a Commanders fan? I am a massive Commanders fan. Do I have how, how much hope I have in us? I think <laughs> they, we get very close to the playoffs every year and it just never ends up going well for us. So hopefully we can make a jump and make it through the next next year. wondering if y'all can... Uh, as the Commanders franchise, you know, obviously the only team in the division not to make the playoffs. What's the missing piece? Or, you know, as many would probably say, pieces. Uh, definitely a quarterback. Uh, Heineke and Wentz just never be able to get it done. Anytime we are, we, they get they get our hope up and they decide to make a play where they just fumble, throw a pick. Just any sort of mess up, they just find a way to get it done. So, yeah, we definitely need to find a quarterback that will help improve our uh, offense and limit the amount of turnovers they get. Coming up soon in a couple months is the NFL draft and a ton of talented quarterbacks really high on the big board, but the commanders selecting 16th overall, do you think they target a quarterback? Do they look to the free agency market? What's their approach here? Um, I would like to... to get one in the draft but I don't think I'm pretty sure all the like the really good ones are going to be going way too early and the price might be too high so I guess we'd have to look in free agency I'm trying to think off the top of my head who the top free agent quarterbacks are but yeah I know last year um, we thought that Wentz was going to be able to get it done and clearly he wasn't the, the answer so hopefully this year next in a free agency you can find yeah, you know, Derek Carr just getting yeah. uh, released today, $40 million payroll, no longer guaranteed. What do you think about Carr making the jump from Vegas out east? I like it a lot. I mean, I think either way is a big upgrade over what we have right now. So I think that we should definitely look into him because obviously I feel like he might not have that best season, but he still uh, put up some good numbers. And I think we have good enough wide receiver weapons around him that he can make it work. So I think he doesn't need to be elite, but. Speaking of quarterback play, I mean, this Super Bowl, just an absolute duel. 
from that position on both sides. Patrick Mahomes following up his NFL MVP with a Super Bowl MVP. But on the other side, Jalen Hurts, not only a heck of a year behind him, but a historic Super Bowl performance. Obviously, Kansas City winning this one, getting the title, but who outdueled the other? Uh, I always got to go with Mahomes. I think Jalen Hurts, I think, obviously played amazing. He did amazing, but his everything around him is so much better than what Mahomes has. He has like the best offensive line and insane running game, and so for him, it's like a lot easier. Mahomes, and like he's going against the Chiefs defense, where Mahomes went against like the best defense. So I think, I, although like like Hurts obviously played a hell of a game, or heck of a game, uh, Mahomes, uh, I think, yeah, outdueled him in that one. Hundred percent, Jacob. What are your thoughts as the quarterback connoisseur? <laughs> Yeah, you know that it's it's always tough. I think for the average fan, and even for the analytical based fan, to differentiate between winning and individual performance. I think the Super Bowl is the biggest game of the year, where your individual performance doesn't matter as much as if you can somehow find a way to win. But you know, I think Akash brought up a really interesting point, which is that the defenses in each of these play a huge. Uh, factor into who you'd consider better. I think Hurts going against the Chiefs defense is definitely a noticeable downgrade from the Eagles. You can just kind of see on some of those scramble plays how many different options are available. But I do think that, you know, Hurts's dual threat ability is a significant advantage that he has over Mahomes. You see on third and one, literally the unstoppable play just shove him from behind. If he gets out of the pocket, he's a super big threat. We saw that on a fourth down play. Obviously, he fumbled, but I don't know. That dual threat aspect of Hurts makes him a really lethal weapon, um, especially compared to Mahomes whenever his ankle is injured. Certainly. Hurts, 15 rushes, 70 yards, and I believe a Super Bowl record for rushing touchdowns with three. So that dual threat leading them so, so closely. Looking across the league, this is something that we talked about a couple weeks ago on the show. A a whole array of young quarterbacks around the league. I'm thinking, obviously, Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow. The list goes on and on, especially with the departure of Tom Brady now. Maybe soon to be Aaron Rodgers um, in recent years, Lost Breeze, right? Who are your favorite young quarterbacks across the NFL? Um, I like Joe Burrow a lot. I think he's just clutch, and he has kind of like more of an X factor to him. I think during the regular season, Josh Allen obviously outplays him a lot, but then when it comes down to it at the end of the game, I just feel like I have more trust in Joe Burrow getting the job done. So I think, yes, he has amazing weapons, and that's probably part of it, but I, he's one of my favorite quarterbacks out there, and he's I think he's one of the best after Mahomes. Burrow yeah. willing uh, the Bengals so close to the Super Bowl. Jacob remembers how taken aback I was when one of our guests said he'd, if he could start a franchise with any quarterback, it would be Trevor Lawrence. Um, Jacob, you want to take the lead on this yeah, one? Yeah, no, definitely an interesting discussion. Question now from one of our listeners on the Twitter poll coming in for you, Akash. They're wondering how you measure quarterbacks from an analytic lens. Uh, coming in with your background from the Stanford Sports Analytics Club, are you using traditional stats like yards, passing touchdowns, some of the more advanced ones, QBR, 
plus minus, etc. What what are your criteria statistically to measure a quarterback's performance? Um, well, yeah, just like generally speaking, there are obviously a lot. There's like the basic basic statistics you were uh, just mentioning, like yards, um, all that stuff. And then there's more advanced statistics. But then there's also some things that like uh, people start have been using more often in like the next gen stats, which can measure like um, how how good like the expected catch the expected rate of the catch from uh the throw versus like how um all right this is not making any sense sorry the uh how basically how well the ball's thrown relative to how open the receiver is getting so like basically are they getting into tight windows or is the receiver just getting open every time so measuring how accurate they actually are throwing the ball and uh where like their throws are actually going on like a uh, in closer detail is one thing that you can use to measure more of how well they're actually delivering the ball and how well they're throwing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, there are so many stats used across the sporting world. That is definitely a new revelation is player tracking, something that hasn't necessarily been done. And, you know, in baseball, which has always been the industry leader in analytics, it's not necessarily super important what do you see for the future of football statistics as a whole? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely growing. I know some of our guest speakers just came in and talked about how they're starting to use it more to figure out like formations, like best plays to run when uh, like the game time decisions. And I know like in the analytical sports analytics world, like the main sports that are talked about and mainly uses in baseball. That's pretty much the biggest one, and they're starting to use it more in, like the NBA. Um, and so I think it's cool to see how in some of these other sports like the NFL and stuff they're starting to use it more and how teams are starting to uh, take a more analytical approach to like the decisions that, decisions that they make and like the play calls that they go through. So I think it is growing and over the next few years hope, I think it's going to continue to keep growing. A hot topic of the analytics. We saw time and time again during the Super Bowl the Eagles continue to go for it on fourth down. I'd love to know your thoughts on kind of that strategy, especially when you know, maybe they're not quite in field goal range or they're on the cusp of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think especially the, the fourth and shorts, I agree you should go, go for it every time because when you have someone like Jalen Hurts, it's almost unstoppable. Like you saw the Chiefs literally knew exactly what they would do. They didn't try to hide it, and yet they still couldn't stop it. So why would you not get it? There's still like a very high probability, probability that you get the first down. Um, and then, I don't know, I, I was actually telling one of my friends that a lot of teams should kind of adopt a similar strategy on fourth and one where like let's say you're the Chiefs like I get maybe not one maybe you don't want you don't want Mahomes to be like QB sneaking every time but if you just have like a designated like put like your fullback and QB sneak with him like I feel like it's almost unstoppable when you have someone that big and that powerful just shoving forward for one yard and then you got people in the back shoving him so I, th- I think it should be used a little bit more and fourth and ones are um great opportunity for teams just to take a, take a little bit of a risk and try to move on for first down but yeah no absolutely and for those fans out there that aren't familiar a few different analytics companies and brands have created what's called a punt index so ESPN has the by far the most popular that essentially tells a given coach whether they should go for it based off of where they're out on the field the down and distance Essentially, in every instance, other than being inside their own 24th and 2 is now the correct analytical approach. So even if you're at your 30-yard line and it's 4th and 1, 
the numbers are saying to go for it, which, you know, is really contrarian to historical football beliefs. Zach, where do you kind of balance that as a coach if you're, you know, someone that is going full analytics versus might scratch some heads if you're at your own 30 and you're going for it on fourth down in the first quarter? Look, man, I've been playing Madden for a lot of years now, and I, I've been on this well ahead of the curve. I, I'm not much of a punter. Um, <laughs> but on a real note, you know, I like to say numbers never lie, but it's all contextual. It's a matter of time and situation. So, you know, if you're down big and, you know, you're on your own 35, okay, let's go for it fourth and short. If Obviously, it's fourth and 15, and you're about to give up another score at a pivotal moment, punt the ball, trust your defense, Hard to give a black and white answer, um, but you know I, I am a fan of fourth down, going for it. Love the entertainment value. Yeah, Akash, what about you? Are you obviously you come in with an analytics background? Are you are you trusting the numbers no matter what, or is it something that should guide the decision but not be the sole factor? Uh, I think it should guide the decision but not be the sole factor. Even my analytical background, like Zach, I mean I play Madden too, and I. <laughs> go for it every single time but um yeah i think there's also just so many factors you have to take into account just not only looking at like the numbers of cross like um the averages across like, the league and stuff but if you look at kind of the personnel that you have like on your team i think that like someone like the eagles should probably end up going for it on like fourth and short way more than like other teams like the bucks maybe who like don't have like a mobile quarterback like brady tom brady had an 11 yard rush this year <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i don't know i just think that a lot of it is based on like, um, like the personnel that you have on your team and kind of the situation that you're in too. So I think that there's like the analytics give a good, good uh, like indicator of what to do, but there's also a lot of things that the coaches have to take into account too. Now, how about when you are in field goal range? You know, there's free points on the board, um, but you have a kicker like Brett Maher that you know maybe the Cowboys ran into um, that issue where you can't quite rely on him. How do you? You know, what are your thoughts on balancing when you're deep in the red zone and you can get three points, but there's kicking troubles and there's the potential for right an additional few points getting a touchdown? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of that's also the same thing. It has to do with like the context of like the score, like whether the field goal make it a two possession game, tie it up, whether it's gonna take the lead. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways that the field goal can like make a difference. Um, and then obviously how far the fourth down is gonna be. So like how hard it's going to be for you to get the first down, but yeah, obviously brought Brett Maher had a not the best, <laughs> not the best showing his postseason. So I think that like when you see someone a kicker that's lost as much confidence as him, that definitely has to play at least a little bit of a role in the coach's mind going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what about the decision to go for two points versus kicking an extra point? Let's just say the average score. Not one that would obviously suggest going for two or one, but you know it's it's fourteen seven. You just score. There's you've got the whole rest of the game to go. What are you doing, and what are the analytics doing? And not just with that, but do you have any insights into the type of plays that that are most successful whenever you you have that short field? Um, so one thing I know is that the analytics pretty much like or support. Uh, going for two more of the time and I think for me I kind of like what I was talking about before it depends on your personnel and who you have like I think if I was the Eagles I would probably go for two way more than some other teams but the one thing that you have to take into account when you're looking at like the analytics of like why teams don't go for two every time then is because 
part of the reason that their two-point conversion rate is as successful as it is currently right now is because they don't go for it a lot. So they don't, the teams don't know exactly what plays they're going to run. They can like drop like not trick plays, but just like special plays and uh, kind of catch them off guard. Um, and so if you kind of go for two more often, like the more often you go for, it, you just expect that your two-point conversion would go down just because defenses would be more ready for it and uh, things like that. So uh, I think it does like depend on your personnel. I would I would expect teams like the Ravens or the Eagles or uh, teams like that to go for it, go for two more often. But uh, yeah, I think that there is kind of like some reasons. Why, there are a good amount of reasons why, even if the analytics show that it's more expected points to go for two, that I mean it's not right to go for two all the time. There you have it, folks. Akash Gupta, president of sports Stanford Sports Analytics Club, breaking down the analytics of this past Super Bowl Sunday. Talking a little NFL. Coming up next after the break, you're listening to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM Sports Zoo. We've got plenty in store for you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. You're listening to the Sports Zoo. My name is Zach Zaffron with my co-host Jacob Nydig. Earlier we recapped the Super Bowl, joined by none other than Stanford Sports Analytics president Akash Gupta. But it's time we return to the farm. A whole lot of action this last week, specifically on the hardwood. Jacob, you know I love talking about this team. The Stanford men's basketball team had a pair of games. Why don't we go ahead and recap those two? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, great discussion that we just previously had among analytics. Akash, you know, representing what the possibility of analytics is, you see some of these stats are 
so confusing and you utilize models that have so many different inputs that it can be really difficult to understand why a coach makes a specific decision or how data can be used to transcend the game. Akash doing a great job of breaking it down in a way that the average fan that has no analytics background can really comprehend. And football is a sport that is barely tapping into that. Baseball has been prevalent in the sports analytics community since Moneyball took over. A sport kind of in the mix, though, basketball, and one that has brought a lot of excitement, as Zach touched on, the Stanford men's basketball team who, you know, unfortunately went one and one over the weekend, which I think many people, including us two, both expected, yet did not go one and one against the opponents that we predicted. They fall to Arizona State after leading the entire game and then pull off a monumental upset against the Wildcats, a top five ranked team in the country, and really do it in seemingly dominating fashion for most of the second half. Ended up pulling it out by right around double digits. Let's first jump into the Arizona State game, Zach, and then and then we can talk about the big one, the saver of Coach Haas's job, the Wildcat victory. But <laughs> you know that Arizona State game against the team we we definitely should beat. We're winning. I think I like over thirty minutes of the forty. What happened in in that collapse at the end of the game? Man, you know, normally this offensive stagnation hinders this team early on in the game, but the script was flipped this time around. Like you said, Stanford led for nearly 34 minutes, stretched the lead out to nearly, or they did stretch the lead out to 13 in the second half. It felt like guys were firing on all cylinders. Brandon Angel finished the game with 13, 10 of which came in the first half. I mean, three guys in double digits. Harrison Ingram up there with 12 and Spencer Jones with 17. They lead by eight with six minutes to go, 63 to 55. And then they just hit a wall. A pair of free throws from Spencer Jones were their only score in that final six-minute stretch. Just poor clock management, unable to you know, really harness time and situation awareness. A real hiccup because this is a team on the come up, recouping from a rough start, trying to make a statement to the people who determine seeding for the tournaments, even potential bids. And then you drop a game like this. You don't love to see it. I mean, putting an end to a praiseworthy Stretch. I say that even as the biggest critic, five straight home victories at Maples Pavilion until this one. And, you know, I remember seeing Stanford up eight with six minutes ago. I was thinking, wow, all right, this game's wrapped up. What else can I go ahead and take a look at? But you can never, you know, count your chickens. No, absolutely. And those three guys that we mentioned in the previous week, it seems like we spent half our show last week talking about Brandon Angel as someone that, that Stanford needs to rely on and he comes out and you know does just that in those final you know 6 minutes when when the collapse somewhat starts when that ends up pushing us i believe we're now 0 and 6 in games that are 5 points or less who do you think we have to rely on 
in those moments, obviously the answer is going to be Spencer Jones or Harrison Ingram, but neither one of them can really handle the ball, are really not going to be the primary people getting the offense set up. Is it still on one of those two? Is it on Michael O'Connell, who obviously you know, played exceptionally against Arizona? What do you think is required of this team or maybe even the coaching staff to realize, okay, the offense is stalling. We just need a couple buckets here. What, what, who does that fall on, on in the program? You know, of course, I'd love to say Harris Ingram, Spencer Jones, those two guys. Like, I wish we could feed them the ball, say go to work, but that's just not the nature of their play. It's just not the nature of this program. Ultimately, the blame does fall on Jared Haas. He needs to put his players in a position to succeed. He needs to adjust and identify when things are falling short, when it's time to adapt, when it's time to evolve, and when it's time to kind of implement a game plan with the changing landscape of the game. That being said, if you had to pin it on one player or a group of players, I mean, it's got to be the guards, you know? you got to get your offense going, manage the clock correctly, at least get shot opportunities. I mean, there was a stretch there after a jumper from Maxime Reno in which they extended that lead where you get a turnover, missed free throws, missed three-pointer, another turnover. And a lot of this is coming from the guards. And, you know, Issa Silva, Michael O'Connell, great game managers, but they need to maintain that status down the stretch, get guys where they need to go command the offense, be the floor general that they're asked to be. Um, But of course, hey, it's a team effort. Um, It doesn't ultimately boil down to this last stretch as long as it is. Maybe the team could have done something in the first 33 minutes um, and prolonged their lead. Maybe there are a few mistakes they could have taken back, you know, uh, set themselves up with momentum, uh, done a couple things, you know, crashing the glass a little harder, setting the tone a little better. Um, But at the end of the day, loss is a loss, and hopefully they learn from it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what's interesting is that Personally, I didn't actually think we closed out the Arizona game that much better. Obviously, we made a lot more free throws, but there was some instances at the end of that game where we needed to break a press and get the ball past half court, and we had a couple turnovers. We missed a couple shots. Luckily, we got some offensive rebounds, but it seems like this team just isn't one that can really be relied upon in the final three to four, five, six minutes of a game. And perhaps that's on coaching, perhaps it's on the team, but they also just haven't played that many meaningful games for 40 minutes. They're blowouts halfway through the first half or right outside the gate in the second half. And so I think that 40-minute focus is one that this team lacks given the the total trajectory of the season thus far. Absolutely. It's like we talk about every week. It depends on what version of this Stanford basketball team we're getting because there's so many different versions and inconsistencies. Sometimes they come out firing. Sometimes they come out so flat. Sometimes they close games so well. And like we saw this last week, sometimes they do not. But if you have a Stanford program that is, like you said, playing to their full potential for 40 full minutes, I mean, I really do think as despite how cynical I am that it that is a NCAA tournament worthy team no absolutely I mean I would have set the bar even higher I think we're potentially competing for a Pac-12 championship 
we don't have the the height that Arizona has. We don't have the shooting that UCLA does. But if this team plays up to its full potential, there's no reason why we can't beat the opponents that we should be and compete with some of those superstar teams. I mean, you just look at the top 25 team and in many of those games where we have played very good basketball against Texas, against Arizona, and even in some of those other games against lower quality opponents, this is a team that has the potential to live right around that top 25 bubble, compete for a Pac-12 championship. And I think that is the most frustrating part of the season is that we have still rarely seen 40 minutes of our best basketball at a given point. Absolutely. I mean, that full potential, arguably, we haven't even seen it for one minute this year because, you know, entering the year, expectations were sky high, returning most key players, everyone with an extra year of development. Looking at the preseason polls, uh, the media had Stanford finishing fifth. And I mean, granted, right, fifth out of 12, not great, but UCLA, Arizona, Oregon, and SC above them, those are great programs. And just because they're right below them doesn't mean they're not competing with them. And obviously, come March, anything can happen. Stanford even got one first place vote in that preseason media poll. So someone sees the potential just like you and I did. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of reason for optimism beyond what some people across the national landscape were seeing. You know, the whispers around the basketball program were that Harrison was was taking the jump to the next level. Spencer was leading the locker room. Issa Silva is someone that I thought we would see a lot higher quality play from and really just a lot more minutes. Not to mention we get our first transfer, Michael Jones. So I think there was a lot of reason to be super optimistic. He was someone that, you know, at Davidson was a scorer and was someone that was expected to be a plug and play type of guy. So yeah, even though national media predicted them fifth, I think there was a lot of people, myself included, that were drinking the Kool-Aid and, and thought, you know, we're, we're going to be no Arizona, we're going to be no UCLA, but this is going to be a team that's setting us up for the next year when we have these five stars coming in to take us to that national level where maybe we make the tournament this year, finish third or fourth in the Pac-12, and then bring in a couple five stars, and, you know, we could compete for the Pac-12, obviously, Looking at that line of thought is makes me feel like I'm crazy and there's no reason why I should have a sports talk show. But, <laughs> you know, there was, there was a lot of reason for optimism on the farm this past offseason. Yeah, well, you know, a bumpy road to begin and, and, and not quite the jump that we anticipated. But taking a look at this season compared to last, obviously we have... A ways to go. Stanford standing eleven and fourteen, five and nine in conference play. How do you think it compares to last year? And just for reference, last year the team finishing at a even five hundred sixteen and sixteen, go eight and twelve in conference play, and then in the Pac twelve tournament, a buzzer beating victory over Arizona State to begin the first round before falling to Arizona in heartbreaking fashion, eighty to eighty four. So those two teams you know, just a staple in, in uh, big moments for Stanford. Yeah, absolutely. 16-16 and 16 should by no means be an acceptable record here on the farm. 
And yet, it appears that we might not even get to that point this year. I think even if we end up, you know, a few games better or right around that same mark, the difference in expectations means that this year will be a consistent letdown because of where we should be. I think last year, you know, there was a lot of excitement with Harrison, Spencer Jones, but we didn't meet those expectations. This was the year where we were supposed to meet expectations. We were supposed to let guys play to their full potential. And so I think this year is one that is kind of the summation of what it feels like has been Haas's entire career, which is just slightly below potential in all aspects of the game, offensive, defensively, leadership-wise. And I think that, you know, he, he has some magic. He he gets a big win here and there. He competes against some of the top programs. But if you look at the season holistically, that losing stretch in the early to middle stage is so hard, was so difficult to watch those games. And I just think the overall product on the floor is so far below where it should be that that there's no way the program can continue in good faith under his management. Well, a I don't know if I'd call it crossroads, but an interesting uh, inflection point here where Jared Haas coming off perhaps the best win of his career over number four Arizona in spite of the struggles earlier in the season, in spite of that long losing streak, and in spite of falling to Arizona State the game before in a very Haas fashion, right? Late lead, blow it away. Jared Haas in Stanford, which we'll dive into in just a bit, 88-79 over Arizona. What does this big-time victory mean for his prospects returning to the farm next season? Yeah, you know, that is the million-dollar question. You know, some people would argue that that this suggests there's reason for optimism. I think I fall into the category that this shows what could have happened, but it's just a little bit too late. I think the entire body of work is way more valuable than, than just a single game. And I think the fact that we haven't been able to play up to that level the whole year is is the bigger issue at hand. It's It's not... His ability to motivate the team in, in one game, it's the ability to motivate the team day in, day out, get guys to live up to their potential. And I think really no better example than that than Michael O'Connell, who played so well against Arizona, has, since his freshman year, really been someone that people have been waiting for to to be that guy. And against Arizona, was that guy and more. And yet, we have not seen that consistently throughout the season and so I think that you know breakout performance, this breakout game is one that people have reason for optimism for, but it's just not enough to save the season because of the entire body of work. Yeah, I I feel very much so the same way. You know, get these big wins. We saw it last year with that win over number five USC, but. You've got to think big picture and long term when considering the head coach position and wins like these and one off occasions is not enough to warrant him staying around. Of course, six games left in the regular season plus the Pac-12 tournament 
and perhaps more after that to see if things change in his standing. But in the meantime, a big win behind them. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Why don't you walk us through, you know, what things happened that that allowed us to do that? Obviously, last week, neither of us predicting this victory, but kind of laying out if Stanford were to make it a game, what needed to happen, you know, what which of those came true, which didn't, and what happened such that the Cardinal were, were able to to defend our home court and pull off a huge monumental upset against the Wildcats. Well, they had to play their best brand of basketball. They had to come out as the Stanford team that wanted to win, and they did just that, firing on all cylinders. They shot a season-best 61% from the floor and an astounding 56% from behind the arc. That's the best field goal percentage against a ranked opponent since 2014. I mean, this team's first top four wins since 2007. We're talking about a historical victory here, and they did it all without James Keefe, which I, I, I tr- like truly believed and felt was going to be a pivotal piece in stopping Arizona offensively. But nonetheless, they did so. They really eliminated those star players that we talked about, namely Tubelis, who leads the Pac-12 in scoring and rebounding. He had just four points and zero rebounds. So offensively, things clicking. Defensively, stopping the stars they needed to. A recipe for success, seemingly against no matter the opponent. That being said, Courtney Ramey, 26 points for the Wildcats. He had a heck of a game with eight three-pointers. So it was that outside shooting that kept them in it. But we talked about the physical difference. I mean... Omar Abalo, 28 minutes, only 8 points, so and, and only 4 rebounds. So the ability to have that interior presence was so huge for them in spite of that perimeter performance. No, absolutely. And, you know, Ramey dropping so many points, he was electric from the outside, but that's something that you're willing to live with if the two guys inside had the type of day that they did. What do you attribute some of their their struggles to? Two, obviously, neither one of them having nearly the day that they expected scoring, but just getting rebounds, blocking shots, hogging up the paint. None of those efforts were successful. What led the Cardinal to being able to shut down uh, these two players, one of which will likely be Pac-12 Player of the Year? I mean, obviously scheme, but that's just such a vague thing, so I'll break it down just a little bit. The big thing is the rebounding battle. It's not often you see Stanford winning the battle on the glass, particularly against an opponent like Arizona, but they out-rebounded the Wildcats 34-26, to just ending possessions with a defensive rebound and also getting second-chance opportunities. I mean, kind of eliminating that defensive threat and, and, and interior presence. It's hard to stop someone when you get an offensive rebound and can just go right back up, you know, right under the basket. 14 second-chance points for the Cardinal. Um, and, and when the outside shot is falling, I mean, like I said, just an incredible clip that they were shooting at from deep and from the field, it puts pressure on the defense. I mean, they have to step up, respect that shot. Once they get by them, then they've got to make decisions. Do the help side defenders step up? Does that lead to a dump-off? So Stanford really capitalizing on every advantage that they could. No, absolutely. And in a game like this, 
that's one foot difference and where a defender decides to stand can be the difference in an offensive rebound. It feels like so many in the last five minutes weren't clear-cut offensive boards, but rather Harrison or Brandon Angel or someone would tip it up and Stanford would have the guy just in the right place. But that's a result of the Wildcats defensive players being forced to close out on every shot, being forced to make an extra switch. And those little changes can go a long way. And obviously, Stanford was able to pull out the victory, but those offensive rebounds, I think, really showed a team that was also willing to fight because rebounding is purely an effort-based approach. It's can you get past your man? Can you box someone out? What's it going to take? And you saw Harrison Ingram countless times in the mix on missed free throws, on missed three-pointers. He was everywhere this game, but especially in the closing moments when he didn't have the ball, he found a way to to still have a huge impact. I mean, in spite of his struggles, that's why I'm so big on him. He does it all, even the grunt work, despite the the star associated with his name, Ingram, 12 points on 5 of 12 shooting, but how about this? Nine rebounds and seven assists. I mean, doing what he does best, just playmaking, hitting the glass, doing it all. That's why he's highly touted entering college and continues to be so. Um, all five starters scoring in double digits for the Cardinal. When was the last time you saw that? Yeah, no, it's definitely fun whenever things are clicking under this system and shows that it, it really is a everybody type of game because when Haas's system is working, it's so hard to stop because everybody becomes a threat. Everybody is moving. Everyone is setting screens. And whenever it's working, everybody is getting in on the success, which obviously was happening against the Wildcats. So Stanford walking away with a historic victory over number four Arizona, and you'd think it'd get easier from there, but up next, they hit the road and play once again the number four team in the country, this time UCLA. What are your expectations for this one? Yeah, you know, it. that's a great question for a lot of reasons, one of which because trying to decipher whether this is a complete fluke <laughs> a half fluke or not a fluke at all is something that people have been looking to do in the past few days, but especially because of what happened last time against UCLA Stanford, I believe starting the game on, on a the bad end of a 20 and 0 23 and 0 run. Yeah. And so again, I would just be happy for a competitive game. I don't, I don't even expect a victory but if if this game is competitive at halftime I think that's a win I do think that the game plan will definitely need to change the guards will be forced to step up because UCLA has so many playmakers but they do look a little bit different than the Wildcats I think Michael O'Connell is someone that is really going to be a critical member of the game. He's coming off a career performance. Hopefully has nothing but confidence. He's going to be forced to do a lot this game on the defensive end, on the 
offensive end, but also as a leader and the primary ball handler, he will need to ensure that this offense gets set, that people are running the plays at Haas calls, and that the ball is being distributed to the most important people on the court. Certainly that guard play going to be pivotal because that was the real difference maker in that opening frame against UCLA last time. Just unable to get anything going offensively. Turnover after turnover. No movement on the offensive end. So when they play UCLA, hopefully that momentum carries over from O'Connell's career high 22 points. Looking at UCLA, entering this matchup with four straight victories, but they did indeed lose at Arizona less than a month ago. Nonetheless, riding that four-game victory. But it's not like this David versus Goliath matchup is going to be something that the Bruins are really even looking past. I mean, they are just one game ahead of Arizona now in the Pac-12 standings for first place. So they know they need to win. They know they can't slip up. It'll be interesting. I feel like oftentimes, you know, when we have these these really high-ranked schools versus unranked opponents, maybe they, you know, take it easy, but an unranked or a, rather a ranked UCLA really having no room for error. What version of UCLA do you think we'll get? Yeah, you know, that is the million-dollar question. If Arizona blows out Stanford, I think we're in a much better opportunity to get a lower quality UCLA, but their head coach is definitely going to make sure that their players know Stanford just beat a top five team. We can't be the second team that does that. And so, you know, it's going to be a high quality UCLA team. They're going to be at home. Every game matters from here on out. And so, you know, I, I think we could spend all day trying to figure that out, but more important is which cardinal are we going to get and i think trying to to figure that out is you know a question that we've been doing the whole season but you have to expect ucla will come out firing they're too well coached they're too talented not to do that and so i'll throw it back to you zach what what are we expecting in terms of both final score and also how we're measuring success in, in game one of the, the L.A. road trip. Well, you know, I'd love to play hypotheticals in a sec about what a win would mean. Um, but looking at this team, it's just so tough. Matchup-wise, we saw that in the first time. You and I were talking about Stanford having all five starters and double-digit scoring figures as a novelty. UCLA has five players averaging double digits. So a high-octane offense, a high-pressure defense. I don't have expectations for a win, but I just can't discount this Stanford team anymore. Really turning a page here in my stance. Um, in terms of final score, it's 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 tough um, because Stanford either gets blown out or they sl- slip away with a narrow victory. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a, a stalled offense as of late for the Bruins, but I do have them winning this one. 76 to 59. Oh, yikes. That that one hurt. But <laughs> I wish I could say that would be an unreasonable expectation. I will once again claim that the game will be a little bit closer. I think a low-scoring affair is one that benefits the Cardinal. I don't I don't think we pull it out, but I think we keep it within single digits, maybe a, a 65-58 game, a 68-60, something 
along those lines. Is there any scenario where we win this game, we win out? Let's say, you know, let's just go all the way to it. We win the Pac-12 tournament. Wow. Where we beat Arizona and UCLA. Is Haas's job still able to be saved, or is he gone regardless of what happens the rest of the year? Build his statue. Put it outside Maples. Are you kidding me? <laughs> win out? Win the Pac-12 t- tournament? Um. You know, obviously an unlikely scenario. I'm not going to say impossible, but, um, you know, when when that happens, I'll happily uh, drop out and, and return to my barista job. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I no, I think if, if, if that happens, you, you've got to get Haas right back here. I mean, he'll you, you could argue he could win coach of the year. I mean, a midseason turnaround like that miraculous. Um, but I think the most important part is that he was able to harness the full potential of this team in the event that happens, you know, make that impact show that he's making a difference as a coach um, and kind of set the stage for a great year next year. Of course, I hate to be a pessimist uh, and I might be crossing a line here, but I don't know if I see that happening. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I see them winning out and winning the Pac-12 championship. Um, but, you know, while, while we're playing with these hypotheticals, what... Do you, you know, how do you see the season panning out realistically? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wish we could live in the hypothetical world because then I, I would have just thrown an NCAA championship on the end of that. We we went out, make the tournament, and win that thing too. But, you know, in reality, I, I just don't foresee us even making it to 500 on the year. We've got, I believe, what, six games left. We would have to win four of those six games Obviously, UCLA, super tough opponent. USC, another opponent that is uh, going to be very competitive. They're right up there atop the Pac-12. We've got the Washington schools who we should win, but you know nothing seems to be guaranteed anymore with this team. I think ending the year at 500 would be a reasonably successful end of the year. And if we could somehow get a, a win in the Pac-12 tournament, that would be huge. I I don't see that saving his job, even if it was a win against UCLA on top of the Arizona victory. I just I don't think you can look again at the entire body of work, not just this year, but in the entire trajectory of his career, letdown after letdown after getting high quality recruit after high quality recruit. I just I don't think you can reasonably expect this program to take a next jump if if he's the man at the the head of the ship. Right. I think it's all about that next jump and having season over season improvement. If we don't get past the first round, um, or rather, if we don't get past the second round, right? We were in that second round matchup last year. If we don't do that, then yeah, no improvement. I foresee, right, a below 500 record realistically. So if there isn't that jump, even despite this surge in the second half of the year, he's got to he's got to hit the road. Yeah. No. If you were to define a realistic road where he could save his job, and obviously some magic would have to happen for Haas to save his job, what do you think it would take? How many wins? How deep into the Pac-12 tournament? Is there even a recipe where he can save his job in the real world? 
We've got six games, like you said. The L.A. schools, the Washington schools, the Oregon schools. You need to win both Washington games. You expect and will. Oh, gosh, I hope you will beat Oregon State. A win against Oregon would be nice, and a win against one of the L.A. schools would be grand. That puts you over 500. You get leeway to lose one against the L.A. schools and perhaps against Oregon, and then you go into the tournament, need a first-round victory. You need to get to the Pac-12 championship. You don't have to win it, but you have to get to the title game. You have to get some sort of postseason bid. I don't care if it's NIT to even consider keeping him back. Right. So so I'm hearing four win four of the last six. I think that would be, what, three wins in the Pac-12 tournament. And then some postseason bid is saving his job. Are we uh, doubling down on that or last minute before it's locked in for eternity? Because, I don't know, I, I still think there's a chance. Harrison Ingram has yet to play his best basketball. And when that happens, you know, they better watch out because we're coming. So you're saying, you're saying they need more. I'm, I think more. I, I, it's so hard for me to think that. Even just being a couple games above 500 is the standard at which we keep our coach, especially given that they would be back-to-back years fighting to be above 500. Fair. I mean, it's kind of a storyline Stanford Athletics has is that head coach search, kind of that um, competent or you know being content at this stage. What do you think are the discussions are being had by you know athletic director Bernard Muir? Yeah, you know, I I think earlier in the season I would have thought that he was thinking of firing him during the season, bringing in an interim, probably an assistant coach. Obviously, now he's it seems like he's going to stay the duration of the season. They're going to let him finish it out and and fight for his job. No clue what will happen, but you know, that's why you play the game and unfortunately we are out of time, but it will definitely be an issue that we continue to cover, especially because of how up and down this season has been. And, you know, with such important games coming up this, this, uh, in the next few days, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure once again on the sports to KZSU 90.1 FM.